0: All of Romans 8, but specifically this section in dealing with God being our Father, has always been very meaningful to me, and I enjoy preaching on it. And so I thought, well, on this Father's Day, we'll go back there to Romans 8. We'll read through the passage, Romans 8, 12 through 17. Paul says here, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified. Let's pray before we... Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words from Paul as he is encouraging this church and through the inspiration of your Spirit, Lord, encouraging believers for you. And Lord, he, he portrays you as the father that you are to us in this encouragement. Lord, help us as we dive into this today. Lord, open our hearts and help us to be impactful in our lives on this day where we get to celebrate fathers. In Jesus' name we pray. As we read through there, you see in Romans 8.15, it says that as believers, we're adopted children of God. He is our Father. These blessings that we have from God being our Father go far beyond any blessing from earthly adoption that we might think of and know of. I mean, something we'll get to. I have experienced the blessing of earthly adoption. I know that there are several among you who either were adopted or who have adopted and you understand what that's like. We think about the who God is and the fact that He would want to adopt us. And so as we look at this, I mean my my big idea as we look at this passage is that that God being our Father changes everything. God being our Father changes everything. And to to understand how we get there from what Paul is saying, again you know, we'll look at the context of where we're at in Romans here that You know, Paul begins by laying out in the book the sin problem, and then he spends a few chapters on this wonderful gift of justification by grace through faith. And then as he gets to chapter 5, he transitions into, so now that we have that, this is what's next. You see in chapter 5, he begins chapter 5 with therefore, so again, tying back to everything he's just said, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jump ahead to verse 9 of chapter 5. It says, much more than now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul's tying this all the way back to chapter 1, verse 17, where he says that the wrath of God is being poured out on all unrighteousness not just the unrighteousness of the unbelieving world, that God's wrath is poured out on sin. And so Paul then is going to begin this section in Romans 5, and this is how you become more sanctified. This is how you grow spiritually. This is how you have a relationship with God in this life that is full of blessing and not judgment. In chapter 5, he deals with sin reigning in this world from Adam's sin on, and now we have this grace that has been introduced. And in chapter 6, he's dealing with sin in the life of the believer, and that we are dead to sin. In chapter 7, he reveals his own struggles with dealing with that sin, most specifically the idea of trying to please God through his own actions as opposed to God's method. And as we've looked at before, he gets near the end of chapter 7, and he, he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And that's, that's what to him sin is. It's this experience of death in this life. And so then he gets to chapter 8, and we looked at this a couple of months ago, but the first 11 verses are, he provides the, the way out of that. It's walking in the Spirit. And he starts that out with viewing sin as this prison sentence that you no longer have to serve, that we aren't in chains to sin anymore. And then we get to our passage here, beginning in verse 12, where again he says, So then, brethren, we are, not under, oblig- we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And so in saying this, and saying that we're not under obligation, the Greek word aphaletes here is literally translated as a debtor. You are no longer a debtor to flesh, to the sin nature in that is living in you. You don't owe it anything. A debtor is one who owes money or services to someone else. That's no longer you in regards to sin. This is a, a reintroduction of this same theme, the way that Paul often builds his arguments that he provides one example, and then he says, okay, so now we understand that, and here's this further understanding of that. That if you are walking in the Spirit, you're no longer enslaved to sin, you're no longer serving a sentence to sin, and you don't owe it anything. And you know, we think about debt and what it's like to owe money to someone else, to owe, you know, if you owe a large sum of money to a creditor. It can control your life. That you're constantly spending everything trying to dig yourself out of that. As we see it in our world today that, you know, debt has become so prevalent. We saw where that has gotten our country throughout the years to where it builds and it builds and then the economy collapses. And but in our world, the consequences of that are nothing like what they were into the world that Paul was writing this letter. That today, if you cannot pay your debt, you may have to face bankruptcy, which is stressful and it can be shameful and it's maybe hard to move past that. But to these people that Paul is writing this letter to, if they couldn't pay their debt, I mean, most of the people that lived in the Roman Empire at that time, we'll get to some of this a little bit later, but I mean, they lived day to day that everything that you provided for your family today is getting used today and tomorrow. And you have to go to work tomorrow to provide for that day and the next. And that's the way it went day after day after day. And so if you fell down and you got hurt and you couldn't work, and you could fall into debt if others weren't there to help you. And if you fell into debt, it wasn't as simple as going to court and trying to work something out with your creditors. You would become a slave. They would sell you. Or they would take your children away from you and sell them to pay off what you couldn't pay. We see that in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unmerciful servant that a man owed this enormous sum to the king and he couldn't pay it, and the king is going to throw him in jail, and the man begs for forgiveness, and the king forgives the debt. And then that man turns around and enslaves someone else because he couldn't pay a much smaller debt. And this is the way their world worked. And so when Paul is bringing up this idea of debt to them, it is extremely impactful. It's something that they would have known and feared. And Paul is saying, we are free from that in regards to sin. He continues in verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Something else we've talked about, it's so easy in reading the Scripture to see words like death and think eternal condemnation. Paul here, as you look through Romans 7 and 8, he's dealing with experiential things. And so like when God told Adam and Eve the day that they if they were to sin, that they would surely die. And they did not actually die that day. But that experience of death entered into the world and into their lives. And living according to sin, or living in debt to sin, according to Paul, is to experience death in life. But to live walking in the Spirit according to the Spirit is to experience life like we cannot experience without God. It is this mindset, it's what we're focused on. You see this earlier in the chapter in verses 5 and 6. Uh, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on flesh is death, but the mindset of spirit of the Spirit is life and peace. I dealt with this when we covered this passage a couple months ago, the first part of Romans 8, but that in my own life, I, I I've seen this play out in that when the times when I was experiencing depression, you're thinking, well, I am no good at this, I'm no good at this, I'm no good at this, and then I become a, like a self-fulfilling prophecy because you don't put the effort in, you don't put in everything that you need to, you're focused on your failures and you just continue to fail. And the same way with sin in our life, that if my whole focus is on the things that my flesh wants, on my sin then that is what is going to be produced in my life. But if my focus is on the Spirit, walking in the Spirit in humility, then the things that will be produced in my life will be life. It will be productive. So what we're focused on impacts our life. That's what Paul is getting at. That's why it's important to know that you aren't in a prison sentence to sin, to know that you aren't a debtor to sin. And as he's getting to, to know who you are. Verse eight fourteen or chapter 8, 4, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is Paul's introduction to us being God's children. And you see as Paul is making this argument, this is just further illustrating how not in debt you are, that you are God's child. And you go back to the Roman Empire at that time, It's estimated that the Roman Empire had about 45 million people in it. Less than 10% of those would we consider maybe middle class. Over 90% were either slaves or in that living day to day for their existence. And most of that 10% wasn't far off of the 90. I mean, at the very, very top, you have the ruling class which had a very, very small upper-crust ruling class, the 300 senators and the one emperor, who would have never had any kind of financial worry at all. And so Paul is saying here, to God, who is infinitely rich spiritually, you are his child. That if you were the son of the emperor of Rome, that there would be no monetary worry ever in your life. So spiritually, you are the son of God. That if you are walking in the Spirit, and that is what is coming out of your life, that this is the opportunity you have that to live as a son of God. In everything that they would have known in their earthly existence, how much greater is God? And what a bold claim that we can have to sin in our lives, that you don't have a grip on me, I am a child of God. He is my Father. So how can this be? How can we be the children of God? Paul continues in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul here is highlighting again the work of the Spirit, contrasting it with the fear of being a debtor. We did have fear We were debtors, but the Spirit has become the instrument of our adoption into God's family. The first class I took in seminary was hermeneutics. And it was funny, when I first got my class schedule, Erica says, what's hermeneutics? I knew I'd heard the term before, I had to look it up. It's learning how to study God's Word, to to fit things into context, to understand how we understand this literally, that it was written to an audience inspired by the Holy Spirit, but that understanding the culture and everything it was written into is extremely important to interpreting for our own lives, that this, this is beneficial for me, but it wasn't written to me. And so how do I understand it through the eyes of the original recipient? And one of the first things we were talking about in that class was that there are words in the Bible that we will read and we automatically assume the meaning because it's what we know the word to mean. And the word that my professor used on this was adoption, that we think of adoption as a mommy and a daddy bringing in a child that they want to love. And yet in the New Testament time, actually throughout most of ancient history, that adoption was more of a legal thing, that if I didn't have a son, so I would be a good example of this. I got told recently that I'm a dodo. I'm a dad of daughters only. At this time, I could not pass my name, my wealth, anything, my titles, onto a daughter. And so if I didn't have a son, I would take one of these servants in my household and say, you now have my name, and I would pass everything on to that person. And so my name, title, all of that could continue. There was no love involved there. But luckily, Paul further explains himself. This is not just a legal adoption. This isn't just we have his name now so that we can spend eternity with him. No, Paul says because of this adoption, we can come to him and cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is actually an Aramaic term, but it is the term of tender endearment by a beloved child. It's affectionate. It it shows a dependent relationship on the father. Paul similarly uses this term in Galatians four, verse six. He's been talking about us being children of God, and that we can cry out, "Abba, Father." But most notably. This is what Jesus said on the cross. Turn with me to Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 36. Oh, I wrote down the wrong one. But this is not on the cross. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's the, this is Jesus in the garden as he's praying to God about what is to come. As we know, the, the, the stress that he was under for what he was about to undertake, and he's there in the garden praying. Verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will So we see that this term that is used by Christ, that is recorded in the Gospels, that Paul is using in his teaching to these churches, that this is a special term a term of endearment between Jesus Christ and God the Father, a relationship closer than any father-son relationship we can even imagine. And Paul says that we too come before God the Father in that way, using that term of endearment. That this is who God has adopted us to be as sons that he loves and that he wants us to come before him in that way. That is the power of of this adoption in our lives. This idea of adoption here, I mean, it just fits so well into everything that Paul is is building on and going towards. I mean, we've been dealing with sin and sin in the life of the believer coming out of what our justification means to us and we see that this is what it has led to, that we are adopted children of God, that this isn't who we are born as, These people in the church in Rome would have experienced what it was like, both as a mixed church of Jew and Gentile, to live without that grace and saving faith in their life. And now they have it, and Paul says, this is what it is. That as David said in Psalm 51, that you may have been born in iniquity, an enemy of God, but you have now been made a part of his family. That the Spirit has adopted you into God's family. You are his son. Like I said, I personally have experienced what it's like to be adopted, to be taken into a new family, to have that be the reality of my life. But I think what we're looking at here is more of a picture of my least favorite movie of all time, the movie Annie. Mrs. Hannigan scared me so much when I was a child. I just hated that movie. But you know, you have this picture of this Someone who is extremely poor, who has nothing, whose life is terrible, and then what it's like to live in the big mansion with unlimited resources. And spiritually, that is what we have been given through adoption into God's family. Continues in verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our Spirit that we are children of God. It's interesting. Again, this is a mixed audience that Paul is writing to in Rome. This. The church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And for the Jews, this wouldn't have been a new concept to be a child of God. Uh, The passage we read from Matthew 7 for our scripture reading today, when when Jesus said that he compared the earthly fathers to God their father, that wouldn't have been a radical concept for them to think of God as their father. But for the Gentiles who are coming out of this pagan worship where everything is adversarial and you know, their whole concept of deities was so skewed. And to, to find this faith in Jesus Christ and to un- try to understand these realities, it would have been completely new for them. And so Paul says that you can know that this is true because of what the Spirit is doing in your life. The Spirit, as he said in verse 11, has given life to your mortal bodies, that he says here has adopted you into God's family, that you can experience that in your life day to day, and know that you are a part of His family. To know that that is your new reality. The Spirit is showing that. In the early church, you see in Acts when when Peter goes to the Samaritans and first to the Gentiles, that the sign that this really was for the world, not just for the Jews, was that the Spirit came upon these new believers. And in the same way, in their lives, they can experience the Spirit. In the same way, in our lives we can experience the Spirit, a different kind of life, a different experience of life than you can have without him. conclude this section in verse 17. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. you, You are a part of God's family. You are an heir of God. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you are a possessor of eternal life. It will never go away. You are an heir of God. But then Paul makes that distinction there. You are also an heir with Christ if indeed you suffer with him. We've talked about this numerous times, even recently. But, I mean, if you were an heir, what do you expect? You expect an inheritance. And the earthly things at this time, you again, it was titles, it was money, it might have been lands. And that concept continues today, that to my own children, whatever I have when I die will be passed to them. And Paul is saying here that as an heir of God, you have eternal life no matter what. There's no if there. But to be a joint heir with Christ, who's going to receive his To be able to participate in that leadership and rulership with Christ, we must prove faithful in this life. Jesus Christ came, he suffered for us, and because of that, in Philippians 2, because of his humility and going to the cross, God is going to give him a name above all names. He will rule and reign forever. He will sit on the throne of David forever as God has prophesied. And to be able to rule and reign with him requires us to be faithful in this life now. What does it mean to suffer? I mean, it's—I think that has looked different to believers in all ages at all times. And right now in the world, there are believers in the Middle East and in China and in other countries where the gospel is opposed, and they suffer for their faith in physical ways. For us in the United States, it may look very differently, but... There may be a time coming soon where we may have to face some of those same challenges. Whereas a church, we have to decide are we going to stand for what we know to be true, what God has revealed to us in His Word, or are we going to bow down to the culture that tells us that these things are are wrong, that we're a, a bigot for believing in sin? And those things are already realities in our interactions with unbelievers. And do we stand strong in what we believe? Do we share God's love with them, knowing that the way they might react? Are we faithful in what God puts in front of us? And if we are, then there's something to look forward to there. That as an heir of God, that I can also partake in being an heir, a joint heir with. Paul here is, through all this, I mean, we're looking at the future, but we're also looking at what we're experiencing in life right now and how can I experience this life that God wants me to have? How can I live a life that's pleasing to him? How can I live a life that is fostering this relationship with him, that is growing and changing who I am? Again, my big takeaway from this, I mean, as Paul is dealing with these things and is so often going back to this mindset idea And using these examples to to try to change who these people saw them are, is what do you see yourself as? Are there things in your life that you look at and go, well, you know, I just, I'm never going to get over that one, so I'm not going to try. Or do you say that I am a child of God, there is no sin that has a hold on me. This is who I am. This is how I can live my life. Being adopted by God, that in spiritual wealth is unending. And that is who I am. And that as Paul has shown throughout this, that this is not an inevitable thing, that this is as believers what we are to do, how we are to, to live our lives in humility, in walking in the Spirit. And that is how we experience that life. But as we conclude, this being a Father's Day message, I wanted to to use this passage and this idea to challenge the dads that are here you now for some time now there have been social scientists that have pointed to the breakdown of the family leading to the breakdown of society and culture that you can look within the culture the greater culture at subsets that 50 years ago the the Families started breaking down and what that led to. And now as a whole, as the family unit seems to be falling apart, what is that leading to in our culture? And as that is studied, the number one thing that is pointed to as the destruction of the family, I mean the divorce rate has risen, other things have risen, but starting out 60 some years ago, was the rise in the absentee father. I had an interesting article on uh, psychology today. And it listed all these effects of what absentee fathers, what effect does that have on a child's life? And in this list, each of these were explained, I'll just read you the list. It said that there's a diminished self-concept and compromised physical and emotional security. It leads to behavioral problems, truancy and poor academic performance, delinquency and youth crime, including violent crime, promiscuity and teen pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, homelessness, exploitation and abuse, mental health disorders. Basically what this article was saying, that in all of those categories, that children that grew up without a dad are so overrepresented that it's impossible to ignore. That this is what a dad in the life of a child means. And so in thinking about this, think about that, that God who has existed eternally, in eternity, past, present, and future, that he's not living in a timeline like we are, that he is just, he is eternal. And he has existed that way always in three persons. And so as he creates us and reveals himself to us, he decides to reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand that he is God the Father. I think that should be impactful in our lives and understanding these teachings that he is a father who loves us. And I had a professor in seminary that stressed that we shouldn't talk too much about God being a father with people that we don't know well. Because there are so many people in our world today who either had a father who wasn't there and they're resentful of fathers because of that. Or they had a father who was abusive, and they're resentful of fathers of that, and we don't want to turn people off from God because they picture him as a father. But I think no matter what your experience with your own father is, that you have an idea of what it would be like to have a good father. And so you look at that, and you look at how God has revealed himself to us, and then you should look at your own life and your own children and say, how do I reflect that to them? I think a hard lesson I had to learn in my own life early in fatherhood, that it wasn't enough to be just a provider, that I had to be there and be intentional and be loving and be a father, not just a provider to my family. How do I reflect who God is to my children? And there are so many aspects of who God is that we can think about, but I'm just focusing on a few that I think as fathers we really need to To focus on, like we looked at today in Matthew 7, that God is a father who gives good gifts. And I'm not talking about monetary things or physical things, but he is a provider in ways physically. We know that, but he provides us good spiritual gifts. What am I providing for my children spiritually? God is just. As fathers, are we holding our children accountable for who they are? And we saw that in this passage, that God isn't going to let just anyone be a joint heir with Christ, that he is holding us accountable for what we are doing with the spiritual gifts he's given us. And so in what ways do I hold my children accountable? But God is a God of grace and love. It's hard sometimes to be gracious even to your own children. Because sometimes they can drive you crazier than anyone else. But it's true. I mean, you know them better than anyone else. You love them immensely. You know what they're capable of. And it can be hard. How much harder is it for God, who is perfect in every way, who has given me his spirit in my life for him to see me mess up and to do it every day? And yet, if I confess my sins to them, he is faithful and just to forgive them. That he's not keeping them stored away over here going, yep, I remember when you did that, and now you've done it again. That he has forgiven me. And that's my last one, forgiveness. How do we show forgiveness to our children? As a father in their lives, as this person that they should know, love, and respect... The way that you show forgiveness to them will be shown by them to their children, will be shown by them to their spouse, will be shown by them to the world. If you want your children to grow up and reflect God to the world around them, you need to reflect love, grace, and forgiveness. I told you, I, I have experienced the blessing of adoption in my life. My parents were not able to have children when my dad was 34 and my mom was 38, they were able to adopt my sister. But they were also told that at the age they were at, they probably wouldn't get to adopt any more children. A couple years later, there was a young lady living a few hours away from them who was 18, almost 19, who was pregnant and not married and decided that she was going to have her baby and that she was going to give her baby up for adoption. And this young woman who did not grow up in a home where they went to church on any kind of regular basis or had a family of strong faith, told the adoption agency that she wanted her son put into a Christian. And so without a word from the adoption agency for over two years, in January of 1982, the adoption agent that helped my parents was the one helping my biological mother lisa and she remembered that my dad was a pastor and so with this request to put me in a christian home she called them out of the blue and said would you like a little boy and i thought about that i when i preached on this before i i, I leaned heavily on i could see god's hand in my life and the way being his child has affected my life and that he has been sovereign over my life from before I was born. But in studying this this week and thinking of Father's Day, I think about that. I never did get a chance to meet my biological father. He died before, in an accident before I got to meet him. But at the time that Lisa got pregnant with me, he was only like 15 or 16. And a big reason that she put me up for adoption was because he was not ready to be a dad. That if she had kept me as her mother wanted her to, that her mother had offered to raise me as her own, that I would have grown up without a father in my life. And so I look at God's blessings on me, that I not only got to grow up with a father, I grew up with one who nourished me, Well, mom did most of this, spiritually that I was taught and loved and raised and shown forgiveness and shown strength and shown what I needed to be to be a man of God. But so much greater is my adoption into God's family. And I am so thankful for that and how that means I get to live not as one in fear of debt and slavery to sin but one who has every spiritual resource that I need to live a life. So let's be thankful for who God is and his love for us and dad's Reflect that to your children.